Hey listeners, you've heard on the podcast from casting directors and Broadway directors just how vital a well-curated social media presence can be for your career. The Breakdown is proud to be partnering with TSMA Consulting, a globally recognized social media firm that can help you authentically grow your following without using bots, fake followers, or anything like that. I particularly love the welcome packet and the videos they include that help you optimize your account. And wow, did I learn a lot. The TSMA is offering an exclusive discount for our listeners. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, on to the show. I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with the artistic director of the Mint Theatre Company, Jonathan Bank. Jonathan's been the artistic director of The Mint, an off-Broadway theater company based in New York City, since 1995, where he's unearthed and produced dozens of lost or neglected plays, many of which he's also directed. Under Banks' leadership, The Mint has earned an international reputation as the source for high-quality revivals of forgotten works and has become, in the words of the New York Times, the leading New York entrepreneur of the neglected play business. Recently for The Mint, Bank directed The Suitcase Under the Bed, Temporal Powers, Wife to James Whalen, Yours Unfaithfully, The New Morality, Mary Broom, and So Help Me God, starring Emmy winner Kristen Johnson. The production received four Drama Desk nominations, including Outstanding Revival and Outstanding Director. Other directing credits include work for the National Asian American Theater Company, the Miniature Theater of Chester, and the Peterborough Players. Listeners, I've been a fan of Jonathan and the Mint Theater Company since I first moved to New York. They produce exceptional plays with some of New York's top actors, so I am so thrilled to be sharing this conversation with you. We talk about how Jonathan started professionally recording Mint productions years ago, and during the pandemic started to stream them for free and used pandemic relief to pay over 100 actors and stage managers the same fee they made when they were performing off-Broadway, including health and pension contributions. Listeners, this is huge. When we talk about EPAs, or equity principal auditions, I was so surprised to hear that Jonathan attends every single EPA, and that's incredibly rare for an artistic director. He discusses why he gives sides, or scenes, at EPAs as opposed to wanting to hear monologues, and exactly what he's looking for, or as he puts it, listening for, to bring that actor in for a callback. Jonathan is an exceptional director and artistic director and brings a unique perspective to the podcast. Remember, if you like what you hear, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We also love to hear from you on Instagram, so screenshot your favorite episodes and tell your friends. All right, listeners, without further ado, here is my conversation with artistic director Jonathan Bank. Jonathan Bank, I'm so happy to be. I'm so happy to be seeing you and chatting with you and, and kind of catching up. And it's nice yes. excuse to you know chat with some pretty cool folks during this time. So again, thank you for for being game and chatting with me. Thanks for asking me. I've always been a huge fan of the Mint. I did my grad school at the Old Globe, which is you know kind of more famously known for being a more classical program. You know, we're doing a lot of Shakespeare and stuff. So, which I love. And I think it works great transitioning to, you know, contemporary stuff and film and television. But when I got to New York and started getting, you know, an audition for The Mint here and there, it was very cool for me to discover this gem of a theater company located right in New York that is, you know, I'm not reading it verbatim, but it's your, your theater is dedicated to lost and forgotten plays. 
which are some one there's some really wonderful stuff and i just think it's a really cool space that you are allowing a lot of this um, wonderful work to be happening so i'm a huge a huge fan of the mint and thank you for for what you do thank you Robbie. so i'm just kind of wondering let's talk about kind of today and now you know i don't usually like to talk a lot about you know the pandemic and covid because we will move on from it and sure um but you know, maybe talk a little bit about what were, what were you and the Mint up to in March, kind of when everything came to, you know, came to a close. And then I know you guys have been doing some streaming stuff, which is really cool. So maybe talk about how you've transitioned um, into that. Sure. We had a production running, two short plays adapted from, from short stories by Miles Mallison, who is a playwright that I really love. We've done a couple two of his full length plays and and these are these were plays uh, you know one adapted from a Chekhov short story and one from a Tolstoy and we paired them they were not they they had never been done together before and we were in the last week of our run uh, which was unceremoniously cut short mm-hmm. um, so that's that's where we were and my first presumption about what I wanted to do it was nothing at all. I apologized to the world. I had been, you know, dying for a sabbatical, and you know, and, and then it was like, no, no, I didn't mean it. Not, you know, not everybody, just me, you know. Right. But, um, and I was pretty sure that I, uh, you know, a- as I started to see what was going on, I thought, well, I definitely don't want to do Zoom readings, and I, you know, I. I mean, no um, offense to anybody who is doing them or loves doing them or loves watching them, um, but I, I wasn't desperate to keep busy because I, I really was desperate to to be not busy at all and to be figuring some things out. And um, at the end of March, I thought, well, you know, I want to I want to reach out at least to a population of contributors that I had, you know, a pool of about 500 supporters. And I uh, so I dipped my toe in in streaming. You know, I offered them kind of a package of videos. And it was interesting because it kind of confirmed my every expectation, which is that nobody really wanted to watch. And I thought, you know, okay, so I'm not going to do that. And then what happened was um, my my finance team got a PPP loan. You know, they went through the process, and I said, I, you know, I don't know what we're going to uh, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. It doesn't. I don't understand. And Andrea Nellis, who uh, you know, said to me, "Listen, we'll figure out what to do with it later, but I'm just going to, you know, get what I can for us." Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and it came through and, and then, you know, a couple days, weeks later, whatever she said, gosh, I'm sorry. I, you know, I think, I think I've read through the rules. I, you know, I think we're going to actually have to return most of the money and um, because we have a tiny staff and, you know, I, I did keep the entire staff on payroll, but that's me and two other people. And then I said, well, you know, if, if we have, this money and it needs to be spent in order to not have to return it and pay interest on money that we didn't need to borrow in the first place. You know, I said, we could do some streaming and I could pay actors. And at least mm-hmm. I'm getting money into the hands of people who I know really could use it. Mm-hmm. 
And we had a, you know, there was a time frame in which it had to be used by, and I, and I had the idea that, that I would do a summer stock festival. I did three shows during a two week period. And, you know, they were all available for the entire two weeks. Uh, it wasn't rotating rep or anything. It was just on demand, free streaming, two weeks, but simultaneously. And and the reason I did three shows during those two weeks was I said, nobody's going to watch anything. So they might as well watch a little bit of a couple things rather mm -hmm. than a little bit of one thing and then never come back two weeks later to watch a little bit of one other, th you know, they want, you know, cause it just isn't of interest and it doesn't work and it's not theater and, you know, and let me just do that. But that meant I had 40 actors earning the same salaries that I'd been paying in March when we were doing uh, the check of Tolstoy, um, 40 actors getting paid, uh, actors and stage managers, directors getting paid. And um, like I said, it was designed to kind of let people who maybe didn't know us get a taste of, you know, what we do by sampling, you know, six minutes of three different plays, one from Ireland, one from England, one from America, and, you know, different periods and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly people are watching from start to finish. I mean, they took an act break usually, you know, but they, I mean, and they're making contributions and they're, and along with their contributions, they're sending notes that says, thank God, thank you so much. We love theater and this feels like theater. And I discovered that seeing a play, you know, a real play and not a bunch of Zoom boxes and, you know, with green screens or whatever, but seeing a, a real play on a real set in a real theater with a real audience recorded seven years ago or meant a lot to people. And of course, the real story here is I had 20 recordings, you know, and so that's the that thing. That was my next question was like, that was amazing that you had these recordings I to use. Had, I started making in 2013, well, even earlier. I mean, I, I started making three camera HD recordings because we do lost and forgotten plates, right? And, and, you know, I would say that in the, in the first, in the early years of the Mint, I kind of felt like what I was trying to do was get other people to produce the plays. Mm -hmm. And what happened, Robbie, was it, it, I kind of realized that if you're thinking like an actor, you know, and if your objective is to get somebody else to do something and there's nothing you could do to achieve that objective. You know, you, it's not like I'm setting up meetings with artistic directors and twisting their arms about, please do this play. I mean, all I would do would be do the plays, do them well, get good reviews, you know, and have audiences prove the plays work and then hope that something would happen. Well, that's not an objective that you can act on. It's not anything mm. you can do anything about. So uh, it, it's a terrible choice for an objective, you know, if, if, which you can relate to as an actor, right? That that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's completely unplayable. So I realized that what I was doing was doing the plays and, and I should make a record of it. I guess the whole story is that in, the, in 2013, when I made a real commitment to just doing recording all the plays, 
it was a good year for us financially, and I uh, and I was I knew I was going to end the year in the black. Our fiscal year ends uh, June 30, and I have a, had a benefit scheduled for you know June. 15th or something. And I, and I could see looking ahead that I was not going to need any of the money that I would raise at that benefit. So I made the benefit. I dedicated all the funds of the benefit. And I told everybody who was buying a benefit ticket, I'm going to put this into a preservation fund that's going to allow mm. me to, you know, to preserve the work of the mint. At that time, you know, I was looking around, I was watching what the Metropolitan Opera was doing, you know, with their HD streaming. And I mean, obviously that's a stupid thing to, you know, to think has anything to do with the little off-Broadway theater. But I, you know, but I, it just occurred to me that if I could afford to do it and if I did it, that maybe one day I could make some use of it. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I kind of really was just putting them in the bank and, you know, thinking that one day... Uh, the union will, or, or the attitude of the union and union members, and you know, would just kind of, you know, would catch up to technology, and then I'd be ready. And I did not expect, you know, that that day would be 2020, and I certainly never imagined it would be as a result of a, a pandemic. But right. there we were. We were. We were ready. And even though I had position myself to do this. And even though I kind of spent weeks in March preparing the videos and uploading them, I still didn't believe that it was going to be meaningful. But um, I was just looking back because, you know, we're approaching, I I don't know when this airs, but, you know, but we're approaching the one year anniversary of that, you know, final Mm -hmm. performance of Chekhov Tolstoy. And um, 26,000 hours of video is how much streaming the Mint has generated. So um, people are really um, enthusiastic about it. The one thing, you know, I should say, because I, I set it up, I did that initial trial and, and none of, you know, that hardcore group of my donors, you know, proved that nobody wanted to watch. Well, they, the, my hardcore people aren't, aren't watching. 75% of the people who are watching have never stepped foot in our theater. And, you know, they, and they're from all across the globe, especially all across the country, but lots of people in Canada, in England, in Ireland, but in Greece and in France and in Spain. And, you know, and uh, I mean, we've um, tripled our donor base. Wow. Um, people are enormously grateful that we're doing it for free between the two weeks in July, which I, which employed 40 actors. And then over the course of the, we're doing six months now from January to the end of June and the three weeks in October, it's a it's hundred actors who were earning paychecks uh, where we're making contributions to the pension and health fund and, and that's, that's incredible. That, yeah. So it's really fun to give it away. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really affirming in a way that I never expected, you know, just that people, oh, people love theater. I guess I'll have to keep making it. You know, so. Yeah. I mean, that is incredible that you had those three camera shoot of the, sh- of the plays ready to go, because I think a lot of theaters, 
we're trying to are trying now to do things, you know, with not a live audience and film it and everything. And just, it's just so difficult with all the COVID restrictions and everything like that. So it's an, it's wonderful that you, that you have these plays and that, and that people are getting to see them and from all over the world, you know, when theater is unique, that you have to be there, you have to come to New York if you want to see a mint production, but now, you know, you have such a wider audience because your audiences, they can watch it from wherever they are. And there's lots of people who have written, you know, that we've, you know, we've read about Mint Productions over the years, you know, in the Times or in the Wall Street Journal or, you know, in national publications, the New York or whatever it is, but, you know, but we've never been able to see anything and now we can, hooray. Um, I mean, it remains to be seen exactly how, you know, what the future will look like, but I can't imagine not having this as part of what we do. Yeah. Um, it also seems like also some great free advertisement. <laughs> uh, not exactly free, it, I guess. It's not free. Being, you right. know, it's not free, but it, it it doesn't matter. I mean, one way to think about it is, I don't, you know, I don't know what the shape of it will, maybe we'll have to start charging then, uh, I mean, at some point or, but, I think, you know, it becomes a better job for an actor, right? If you, you know, if you get 10 weeks pay for, you know, for eight weeks work instead of, Mm -hmm. you know, and some of it is you're just getting paid because the shows are being streamed, um, but you don't have to show up. And for an actor, that health and pension contribution, I can say, is really big. So that's really that's really important. Yes, I remember Chekhov Tolstoy because I was in I was doing Paradise Lost at Theater Row, mm-hmm. same time when you guys, so I was always seeing your posters and everything. And then, you know, we closed March 1st, but yeah. it was kind of that eerie time when like, you know, you couldn't, people couldn't come backstage and it was, you know, we were all getting a little cautious, but such an interesting time to reflect upon, especially now as we look, you know, a year ago. Yeah. I'm interested a little bit in knowing your story a little bit more. I know that you, you took over the Mint, I think, like a few years into its inception? Yeah. Over as the um, artistic director. I'm just wondering maybe, was this something like Lost and Forgotten Plays that you have, has always, when you were, when you were previously before you took over the position, was it something that was interesting to you? Um, and then how did you kind of move into the Mint? You know, I, I haven't, you know, the answer to has it always been interesting is, uh, I mean, you know, what I do remember when I was, you know, nine, that the B side was always really a more interesting, uh, yeah, I'm talking about 45 records and you I got and it. You I know what they are, it. but you know. Records are trendy again. We're all listening to records again now. But not 45 RPM. Right, right, anyway, right, right. Um, you know, that, you know, there's something there that, uh, um, had some interest for me, but really the, the, the way I remember it, I mean, the, 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 the thinking for me was really that I was interested in a, in the well-made play in a plot based play, you know, narrative play where the key question of the play was not what is the director going to do with the famous scene, you know, where, how, how will Banks Hamlet, you know, handle the closet scene? You know, mm. I, that was not my interest. My interest was I wanted an audience to say at intermission, I wanted people talking about what do you think is going to happen? And that meant two things. It meant they had to not know the play 
And it had to be telling a story in a particular kind of way where you could wonder what was going to happen. And the fact is that really meant older plays because around the 60s or so, the narrative style just changed and the Mm. idea of a well-made plot-based protagonist facing a conflict, uh, facing choices, that's not exactly how playwrights were working anymore. um, And I'm sure there are plenty of exceptions to that. And if anybody who takes offense, please forgive me, you know, but... But I felt that, you know, that the kind of narrative that interested me was going to be an older play. And there's another thing, too, I guess, is that I I wanted to do plays that where people kept their clothes on and, and they expressed themselves with uh, words and not profanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't talk about that much because, you know, I don't know how well that reflects on me, but it's not what I wanted to do. So it, it basically meant you know, looking for good older plays that kind of fell out of fashion. And, you know, I would say that 90% of the plays that I've done, I I don't know if my statistics are quite right, but the vast majority of the plays we've done were successful at one point, but just fell out of fashion, fell out of circulation for whatever reason. In our early years, I know we, I mean, we did like the first New York revival of two Pulitzer Prize winning plays written by women, you know, one from 1931 and one from 1921 or, you know, something Mm -hmm. like that. I don't, I'm getting my years wrong, but plays that, you know, were considered good enough to win the Pulitzer Prize. Um, Yep. And, but never had been revived. So, but a- anyway, the point is, is that th- these are not plays that have always been obscure. They're just plays that, you know, and that's why we use the term lost or neglected, neglected, forgotten. I kind of use them interchangeably. So I do kind of want to switch gears a little bit and jump to the audition room. It's something that's a little bit at the heart of the podcast. And I'm just so um, interested and excited to to talk to you about it and, and get your perspective. We have been talking to a, a, some casting directors and, you know, different directors ranging from television to musicals and, you know, straight plays, but, you know, everyone kind of has their own perspective. It's, you know, largely the process of auditioning is aesthetic, it's taste, it's, you know, not one size fits all, it's all different. So I welcome your honesty and, you know, part of the podcast is, you know, not through, you know, not hearing any of this through rose-colored glasses. I want people to know, like, what it's like, what what people are looking for, what they care about, what they have to say about it, you know, just all from a very honest perspective. So you work with a casting director, and I guess, like, just talk about, you know, are you there in the room for initial appointments? And also, I'm interested, because you're the artistic director, but you also direct, and how your process changes when you are directing the production and then when you have a guest director coming in for the production. But are you usually there for initial appointments for kind of both circumstances? Robbie, um, I'm, the, I'm there for the EPA. I have gone to every single I love that. EPA since, you know, 1996 or whatever. Wow. Or maybe earlier, you know, uh, I... Um, 
I so applaud that because so so often sometimes you're getting an you know an assistant of a casting director and you know we talk a lot about how EPAs are important and yeah. you come in for an EPA they're meeting they're meeting and doing work for you which is excellent right I I, I you know I began doing it and I feel obliged now <laughs> to continue I mean there's occasionally if I can get the production director to do one of the two days or something, you know, mm -hmm. I might do that, but I generally don't ask a production director to go to an EPA. Um, mm -hmm. uh, or sometimes I'll ask a production director who I feel more inclined to kind of keep my eye on. I say, you know, come with me for to a couple hours of the EPA so that we can just establish that we're on the same page about this. So I don't miss any auditions. So let's actually like I'm going to amend my question then because of talking about EPAs. I'd love to just stay there for a second. Sure. You go to EPAs, you've seen at this point probably thousands of actors coming through. What do you have to say about EPAs? Like what what is an actor? What kinds of actors? You know, you're looking for a very specific thing. Obviously facility with language is important. Um but what what sorts of things makes you lean forward or makes you want to maybe bring that actor in for an appointment? Um, or just what comes up for you about anything? Well, you know, I think the important thing to understand is, you know, you mentioned before you hit record, you talked about having worked as a reader. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I think everybody, and by the way, you, you know, anybody who's listening, my EPAs have been by side for mm -hmm. 20 years. I pick sides, I make them available. I uh, have made uh, an effort over the years to make sure that the script is available for the EPA. And um, I'm always looking for the email from the non-ec or, you know, says, I, I don't think I'm going to get in, but if you need a reader, you know, I always pull a reader. I'm, I'm usually able to pull a reader for my or a handful of readers from my EPAs out of emails I get in response to a casting notice. And I think that the thing you learn, one of the big lessons you learn being a reader is that it's not a talent evaluation. Mm -hmm. That's not, we're not separating good actors from bad actors or good actors from less good actors. I'm looking to, cast apart and uh, that you know you de can determine fit from a reading if the actor is prepared so the biggest problem at the epa is uh it's rare when anybody is adequately prepared to the point of earning a callback and when somebody has read the script and in, and i you know when i began providing scripts we used to post PDFs on our website. I always, you know, felt like I needed to apologize for creating all that work for people who really just want to show up at the audition center, see what's, you know, they might read for today and sign up and and invest 10 minutes in looking aside over it. Um, but when an actor believes that a director is looking for potential so that they can you know, do their Svengali routine and and sh shape raw potential into a finished performance, you're, you know, they're just completely missing the boat. Actually, in an audition, you're looking for a, a performance that you could live with. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean that, you know, you wouldn't like it to grow. 
you don't, or that you don't, you know, it doesn't mean that you aren't expecting it to grow, but you're not counting on it to grow. You know, you need to be, you actually need to see something that, that feels right enough to um, kind of put your mind at ease. Mm -hmm. um, occasionally I've cast potential because the potential seems so phenomenally high, you know, so somebody who's maybe too raw to give, to really produce the performance that I'm talking about in their audition, but there's, I'm not going to see anybody else who, you know, who looks that young and, you know, or blah, blah, blah. I'm looking for, I'm just going to amend that because what I'm listening for Hmm. more than I'm looking for. I'm listening for an understanding of the play as evidenced in the 80 seconds that they have to, to work with. You know, mm -hmm. they, they understand the world of the play. They understand the, the context the, and the character and the scene and the language. Uh, you know, so it's not about a facility with language, you know, it's about does this audition sound like it sounded to me in my head when I read the play? Mm. You know, it, do they, can they, are they honoring the rhythm that I think is really obvious in the writing? Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm always looking um, for an actor who can play the part, you know, who, and, and you know, not for a good actor, but an actor who can play the part, who may not be able to play anything else. I have been surprised a number of times at actors who have come in for me and that I have cast and that I have thought were exceptional, you know, and, and they've become, you know, my favorite actor ever. And, um, and to discover that they'd come in four times before and I didn't even remember them. They just didn't register at all because it wasn't the right, fit. Mm -hmm. That's really well said, I think, because I think for so many of us, we're trying to come in or the mindset is to prove ourselves, or I think indirectly, many actors think, look how talented I am, do you know, right. but it's so refreshing to hear you say, I don't care about, you know, how talented you are, what, you know, it's about, are you right for this role to tell this story? you know, in this play that I hear and that I'm imagining. And yeah, that, I mean, that all really makes sense. It's important, I think, for a lot of people to hear that. I wonder, you know, I just, just because you're an artistic director, I'm interested in maybe the process when there's a guest director that you have coming in right. and your role there in the audition room. How, how much do you put your opinion out there or how do you, do you collaborate on casting choices and maybe just talk a little bit about that? I put my opinion out there as as much as is necessary. I will never force a director to cast someone, but I will never allow a director to force me into casting someone. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I find that most of the time we agree. And if there's a disagreement, it isn't usually I prefer A and she prefers B. It's usually I prefer A and she wants to keep looking, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Um, maybe interesting story is uh, mm. 
Stuart Howard is a casting director. Yes, know? I know him well, yes. But, yes, well, well, Stuart directed a play for me in 2009. Oh, wow. And we had an audition process and we, you know, we had a casting director, I mean, somebody from his office, but, you know, my usual casting director, uh, Amy Schechter at the time. And in a very important role, Stuart wanted an actor that I told him, he, I said, you can't cast him. He can't do this play. It won't work. It won't, it's not right, Stuart. You can't cast him. Mm -hmm. And he didn't fight me. And he cast the actor that I thought could do the play, you know, and, um, and he wasn't resentful, you know, but he did at, on the, after the first day, he said, thank you so much. You were so right. He couldn't have done what this play needed. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't, you know, thank God I have, you know, X other actor, which was also true. I mean, X other actor was exceptional. So I take care of, the, you know, my job everywhere is to take care of the play. Mm -hmm. So I speak for the play. I speak for the play in a design meeting. I speak for the play in a casting session. I speak for the play always. I guess, you know, I speak for my vision of the place, but I pick the play, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, I know why we're, you know, why I'm doing the play, why I, why the mint is doing the play. Right. Um, there's never been a problem is really what right. it comes down to is, is, is that no disagreement has ever been complicated. Either. Yeah. Because if you're hiring a director to come in and direct a play for the mint, you've also either seen their work or agree with their aesthetic or, you know, that's kind of the, um, we have to trust each other and we right. do. So, you know, so that it, when, when I say to a director, I don't think that's, I don't think she's a good idea. It's usually the end of the conversation. So we get to the end of a session and, and, you know, the casting director will say, let's go through the day. And it could be that, you know, and you, there's a bunch of people that you don't need to talk about. And then there's the three people that you're thinking about for callbacks or whatever. And, and it happens that the director doesn't mention the person that I like best, you know, that they're not, the person that I liked best is not on the director's callback list. Well, I don't say anything then. That's fine. You know, mm -hmm. if you didn't respond to that person, fine. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not, it isn't, um, you know, my taste versus your taste. If I want person A and you want person B, the odds are really likely that person C is the one who's, who we're going to agree on. Right. And it's important that we agree. And, but I mean, agree on, it doesn't mean that C is the compromise. Uh, it means that there's something wrong with A and something wrong with B and C is the person we need. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I say wrong with, I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that A, B and C aren't all capable of doing a good job. Or, or And it doesn't mean that if you lose C and you end up hiring A, you don't, you know, love A with all your heart. You right. Know? You have to believe you're making important decisions as best you can. Yeah. Yeah. And it also occurs to me that I, I think we hear for actors, you know, it, it is a long game. It is a marathon. And every audition is a chance to meet someone, to show your work, you know, to always do good work. So, you know, I have to imagine that 
say a guest director ends up choosing maybe the actor that wasn't your first choice, maybe that actor you really loved is going to come in for you again in the next year or two or something, and you'll see them again. And, and you know, that person maybe will be in your head or you'll remember that person's work or something. Yeah, I, uh, that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to caution you that, that when your agent says you should go, even though you, uh, even though you don't think you're right, right, you shouldn't go. Exactly. And when your agent says, I want you to meet bank, you know, even though you're not going to take the job, that's not right either. Exactly. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. I personally don't hold it against an actor for turning down a job. I mean, I don't think that, you know, I don't believe that showing up at an audition is a commitment to accepting the job. Mm -hmm. I think that you want to think twice before you show up at a callback if you have no intention of taking the job. You know, that, yeah. that's just not really fair. And I also want to say, I mean, just repeat what I said before, which is that, um, I mean, it is a long game, but it doesn't mean I'm going to remember you from the audition right. that, you know, for the job you did, you weren't right for. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because it's an individual, you know, it's an individual yeah. thing. You know, you have to be right for that show that you're doing, you know, for that director, or if it's you, you know, again, you're going in, you're casting the role, you know? Yeah. So. And, and I, you know, uh, there is a point where if you come in a lot and don't book, there is a time where I might say to the casting director, I think we need to take a break. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have, let's not have her in again. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm tired of not casting her, you know? Right. Um, so, so just showing up isn't necessarily the smartest move, right. you know, if you're not, I don't know a lot about the relationship between actors and agents, but I think an actor shouldn't be afraid of saying, I read that play and I don't know why you submitted me for that. I, mm. that's, that's, I'm not going to book that. Uh, and sometimes that is, you know, and then I know that's hard because the agent, you know, got you the audition, and, <laughs> um, you know, and you're saying no, thank you. So it's complicated. But I guess I should say I'm not in this game for, you know, the fame or the fortune. I, you know, I I want to make good work with people that are fun to make good work with and people for whom, you know, their shared values. What I say, I can afford to be idealistic because I've kind of written off fame and fortune and uh, I'm comfortable living off of my ideals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you've created and maintained an incredible theater in New York and that does really wonderful, solid, solid work. And I've always enjoyed coming to see your productions. So, and so grateful that you chatted with me today. We, time went by so fast, Um, but I think there were some really wonderful, wonderful points that you made. And I loved hearing more about the mint and I, I appreciate the, you know, especially what we were just talking about, about, you know, being able to say no and being right for something and, and knowing, you know, when to come in for the job and, and the work you know, and, and what you're, you know, what you're looking for, you know, you're there to cast that show, that role. And that's, that's important. I, to know. The one thing I, sh- I want to add just on that point is because there's a lot, uh, I, I mean, I think we're talking about fit and, and, or what you are right for, but it really, 
sometimes it comes down to what you're passionate about. Mm. So, you know, that if you feel a connection to something, don't let something superficial put you off. You know, often I have no idea what this, the actor looks like that I need for this part. I just know what the part sounds like coming out of their mouth. Yeah. You know? And it's about connection and it's, it can be about connection. And if you feel passionate about something, then you might be right about it, right for it. You know, uh, you should, you, so you should honor that. And if you feel, I mean, if you're, if you're a glove perfect description, but you don't, connect with the character at all you're probably your audition's not going to pop in the way that you know here in new york i can keep looking some you know somebody's going to nail it mm -hmm. and it's probably not going to be somebody who's indifferent to it yeah absolutely we talk a lot about with casting directors specifically about how type is not really useful anymore right. especially as it once was because for exactly what you're saying and you just said it in a different way you know it's not about whether you're right for it or if you're the right type, you know, it's whether, what can you bring to it? What are you passionate about? I think that's so important, you know, especially as we move into casting roles in different ways and different genders and different backgrounds and ethnicities that maybe they haven't in the, in the past. So right. I think that goes right hand in hand with that. Do you have a right. passion for it? You know, absolutely. So I, I love hearing that. And I, I think it's just another great way of emphasizing that, that point. So. Jonathan, I could keep talking to you all, all afternoon. I love talking about theater and, you know, hearing more about the mint. So I, but I so appreciate your time and your willingness to jump on here and chat. I know people are going to, are going to really love it. So Great. thank you so much for taking the time to um, enlighten us all. Thank you, Robbie. Thanks for, uh, for giving me a chance to talk. Of course, anytime. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Instagram and Facebook at The Breakdown with Robbie. We also have some pretty exciting supplementary content over there like Instagram live catch-ups with some of your favorite podcast guests. If you like what you hear, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and write a quick review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And don't forget to check out TSMA Consulting. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, thanks for listening and get ready for another episode of The Breakdown.